is Tomorrow Today, Season 1, Episode 2. It's Kiev, not Kiev, with Alexander Volodarsky. So back in the late 1990s, I was finishing a PhD in psychology, and I became interested in this esoteric, weird branch of mathematics, nonlinear dynamical systems theory, uh, better known as chaos and complexity theory. I, I wanted to learn this perspective as a means for quantifiably understanding and predicting human behavior, individually, collectively, even in entire nations. And so doing this work uh, at a bunch of different institutions, and I was awarded eventually a National Science Foundation Fellowship back in 1999 to study with a group called NEXI, the New England Complex Systems Institute, which is co-hosted at Harvard and MIT. Well, in May 2000, uh, I guess I probably did okay on the first fellowship because they granted me a second NSF fellowship, postdoctoral fellowship, to study as part of a NATO Advanced Study Institute, believe it or not, at Moscow State University. Yes, that Moscow, right in the heart of Russia. I know it sounds weird that it was a NATO Advanced Study Institute, but believe it or not, back in 2000, Putin was actually intent on having Russia join NATO. Most of us have forgotten that. And so, yeah, they decided to be accommodating and have us come over. And it was an incredible experience for me. You know, uh, I'll never forget I my first day when we get there, I walked out on the quad. And I've been told my whole life about the evil empire and how awful, you know, Russians are. And even when I was in the military, we are targets. They called them Igor or Ivan and had them sh- uh, shoot at them to train us. But there I was, my first day at the university, I walked out on the quad, and what do I see? Not evil people. You know, I see this old couple sitting on a bench holding hands, a kid flying a kite with his dad, a couple of teenagers making out under a tree. They were just people. And and it, it threw me, it jarred me a bit, I have to admit. But from there I, I go and I went into the university itself, and if you've ever seen pictures or if you've ever been to Moscow State University, it is magnificent. It is this beautiful edifice, this this glorious set of buildings from the outside. When I went in through the front door, as soon as you went to the front door, you realize it's all a facade. It is broken down. It's crumbling. There are literally rats. You see rats in the halls. Everything is is in disarray. It's It's looks like nobody has done any repairs to it in 50 years. It feels like you're on a Hollywood set. It, it was incredible. And from there, you know, that, that evening we got on the subway, on the train, and we went to downtown Moscow to check out and see the sights. And we were told a couple of bars we could go to, a couple of restaurants. And we go and we see this incredible mix of people who are clearly, obviously destitute, And yet we also see a bunch of Ferraris and Maseratis, cars that would make you turn your head anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the Western world. We see them lined up in front of restaurants. Mind you, the professors at the university couldn't afford to come with us because they were paid only $300 US a month when they were paid. And that wasn't often. We had to host them. They were begrudging. They they felt embarrassed to come with us. Our tour guide we had later on uh, after I was there for a week or so. They gave us a tour guide. We stopped in front of a restaurant. She stays in the bus and we told her, well, don't be silly. Come in the restaurant with us. She admitted to us that she'd only been in a restaurant once before in her life and that was on her wedding day. So this disparity, it's just absolutely extraordinary and it really stayed with me. It reminds me of that those parades they would have in Red Square where they would come in and they would show all the armament. And I don't know if you know, but they would make a U-turn and they would come around in a loop and show them over and over and over again. In fact, you know, one of my friends and I, we we took a trip down to St. Petersburg while we were there and we were touring Peterhof, the uh, czar's old mansion. And we're looking around. It's so opulent. There's gilded everything. There's gold everywhere. And he turns to me and says, you wonder why there was a Russian revolution. You wonder why they killed these people and why they took back the country. We're we're looking at a place where less than 1% are bringing a country to ruin. And they always have. 
This is what's going on now. We have 1% led by Vladimir Putin, very personally, who are fixated on slaughtering Russia's Ukrainian cousins out of some twisted hope of, I guess, resurrecting the glory of the former Soviet Union. But the tide may be turning. The world has chosen a side, and it has sided with Ukraine. At the time we're recording this, this is in May, let's see, 25th of 2022, Finland and Sweden both recently announced they're going to join NATO. Boris Bondarev, Russia's counselor to the United Nations Geneva, has resigned. He posted publicly his letter of resignation on LinkedIn, and he wrote, and I quote, never have I been so ashamed of my country. And he went on to say, and I'm quoting, those who conceived this war want only one thing, to remain in power forever, live in pompous, tasteless palaces, sail on yachts comparable in tonnage and cost to the entire Russian Navy, enjoying unlimited power and complete impunity. To achieve that, they are willing to sacrifice as many lives as it takes. Thousands of Russians and Ukrainians have already died just for this. I have to tell you, these circumstances have left me reeling. And that's why I'm so honored, humbled uh, by our guest today, uh, that he would make the time to speak with us. Alexander Voldarsky is a Ukrainian citizen, and he's the CEO of a company called Lemon.io. Their website, by the way, Lemon.io, it's a company that basically serves as a matchmaker. They match companies with software developers in Ukraine and other nearby countries, but very pointedly, not Russia or Belarus. Lemon.io currently has, as I understand, about 55 employees, most of whom are currently living and working in Ukraine. Alexander was born in the Soviet Union. He grew up close to the Russian border after the collapse of the Soviet Union. He's a citizen of both Ukraine and Israel, and he spent substantial amounts of time in Israel and the U.S. Uh, little side note, before we introduce uh, uh, Alexander onto the show, I have to tell you, I became aware of Lemon you know, when I started working with them just uh, a couple of weeks ago. We contacted them. We needed to augment one of our developer teams. They matched us up with someone. Alexander will be happy to know. We were wrestling with a problem, our development team, for nearly two years, for 22 months. They've been wrestling with this problem. The developer they coordinated for us that we have working with us now solved the problem in under a week. Extraordinary talent, extraordinary capabilities. Alexander, so thanks for your patience as I blathered on a bit. Thanks so much. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's a great pleasure. And hearing these words, you know, uh, it's incredible. Thank you. Oh, not at all. Please, the honor is mine. Absolutely. Where are you, my friend? Where are you located currently? I'm uh, I'm I'm in New York right now. Okay, good. I know that uh, I was speaking to one of your colleagues uh, who just returned to Kiev. Uh, and by the way, get, help me with the pronunciation. Is it Kiev or Kiev? It's Kiev. Kiev. Good. But I think in in English there is no a. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, English. Uh, we're notorious for butchering. Uh, the names of different places and, and a different language. But, but it's not that. For many, from the from 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 the dawn of uh, Soviet Union, the Ukrainian cities were always pronounced in Russian. So Kiev is in Russian, ah. but Kiev is in Ukrainian. And for the last, I think eight to ten years, we've been fighting to for the world to and like every Ukrainian corrects and you know any person online or ever that it's not Kiev, it's Kiev, it's not Lvov, it's Lviv, it's not Kharkov, it's Kharkiv. <laughs> so yeah, it's not about butchering, it's it's about, you know, all this yeah. influence that um, Ukraine had from Russia, we're trying to, to leave it behind. Well, and talk about a lack of even cultural respect, that's, that's fascinating, I didn't know that. Uh, that, uh, I, I mean, we're not only going to uh, decimate your country, we're not only going to subjugate your people, we're going to subsume your culture, and we're going to change how the name of your country is pronounced. It's extraordinary. Um, but get, getting right to it, Alexander, um, did you see this coming? Did, did you have any clue that we would be where we are right now? Um, of course not. Yeah. If we would see this coming, uh, we would probably 
we would probably, you know, act differently. And don't get me wrong, it was looking back, it was obvious it was coming, but we were in a huge denial. And the thing I, I think what happened is Ukraine is at war since 2014. Yeah. Of course, it's a different type of war when, you know, since Russia occupied Crimea and parts of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, people are at war, but it's it's somewhere else, you know. If you live in Kiev, if you live in the West, it's somewhere else. Of course, it influences you, you're worried, you are, you're not, you don't feel safe, but this is already like one, I spoke to one journalist, he said, like, when you go to Ukraine right now, even right now, you get there, you, see, you look around like in on the West and you go around, you see like, it's a normal, normal day. Okay, there is a missile once or twice a day, but <laughs> wow. it's, you know, like you, you feel safe. And then the tolerance of your, of the risk goes up. Yeah. The same with us, like <clears throat> we've been in this war for eight years, for eight years, we know there is, there is a, there is a threat, but it, the threat was always somewhere. You don't, you don't think about this sure. as, as, as a real threat on you that there is, a, could be an, an invasion. So even with all the hype in the media, we were in denial. The funny thing, I came back from a vacation. I took my parents and my son to a vacation and we came back from that, from Barcelona, 10 hours before the war started. Oh, well, timing is everything, right? Came back, I went to sleep. My parents sat on the train to go to Kharkov. It's the city that, you know, one of the cities that were hit the most. And they were on the train while, when the war started. So we were in such a blind denial yeah. that, you know, we, we were, we felt comfortable to coming back and comfortable going to, to the East where the conflict was for a long, long time already. But, you know, to your point, it's well taken when you consider how long uh, Ukraine has been under assault from Russia. I mean, it's since you were born, right? You were born in what was then the Soviet Union, where, uh, you know, there was this iron fist uh, controlling the country. And and it's, I'll argue it didn't restart uh, in in the Donbass, it didn't restart uh, just a few years ago. It's been unre- been relentless. It's been ever since. You know, I know you uh, you're also an Israeli citizen. I spend a lot of time in Israel. Uh, so, for those of you out there playing along, it means I don't speak Hebrew very well. Uh, but um, I, I know that's sort of the attitude in Israel. It's like ah, there was a missile down the block. You know, it's like whatever, and we came back to work. It, it, it's funny, I was uh, military and I traveled to, you know, some horrible places. And uh, it's funny how how rapidly for, for countries, for companies, for organizations of any kind, for people, that the extraordinary can become ordinary. Yeah. And it just becomes part of, you know, it's life. Uh, it, it's terrible, but it's true. You know, it's... Uh. And, and in Israel, it's even worse in this case, because in Israel, you have very advanced weapons, you have... Uh, uh, you have the, um, I don't know how, I don't know the term in English, but it's called the golden iron yeah. that, you know, that protects you and, uh, and, uh, you know, it can, can shoot every missile that comes in, you know, it, it can be taken, taken down. So you, you, the, the, the tolerance to the risk is even higher. You, you, you really, you, you said really well yeah. that unordinary becomes ordinary. And and I think that's exactly it. And and as we have the conversation later on, I'm going to guide you down, talking to us a little bit about what lessons can we learn. But what, even before we get there, you know, when we in the West were watching the run-up for this, uh, I, sort of disgustingly, it was during the Olympics. And as we're watching the Olympics, and I know Putin is a big sports fan fanatic, and so, of course, he's not going to do anything to disrupt the Olympics, uh, even though Russia is precluded from participating in the Olympics, although someone's going to have to explain to me sometime why you can just change the name of your team and it becomes okay. I, I don't quite get that. But we're watching almost on a split screen. We're seeing the Olympics on one screen. and On the other screen, we're seeing all these troops amassing along the Ukrainian border. But to your point, I think it became so normal for Russia to rattle its sabers and to threaten and to, you know, posture that I'm sure in Ukraine, it was just, eh, it's, you know, Tuesday. Not, not really. Yeah. So when, when, when they started to, to get around the border, people got very nervous, uh, but naive. I, I'm talking about myself. I'm not talking about people. We became nervous. Sure. I had a suitcase that was packed in any case. I don't own a car. So 
I asked a friend to borrow me a car that he had, he had a split car just in case. So we became nervous. We became con- you know, self-conscious about this. And we spoke about this because my parents were in the Eastern city. I talk about how they, I didn't think it's going to influence me because I was talking about how, how can I evacuate them in case, yeah. you know, what would happen in case they invade, but we thought everything going to go from the East because it's, it's been always on the East, but people get, got nervous and we had to, we had to work with our team a lot to just gave them some some kind of clarity what's going to happen if 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 anything happens what we have to do how we're going to act so it was it was it was a lot of tension but talk to me a little about that about your team alexander you you have dual citizenship you're currently outside of ukraine you made a very conscious choice to start lemon io in ukraine and you know i i have to tell you i'm i'm in awe of that uh, i so admire you because Never minding the kinetic actions that uh, Russia has taken, you know, whether it was invading the Crimea or it was uh, the current tragedies, you've been under assault in our industry, in software and and in those areas for quite some time. You know, I remember Ukraine took out the power grid back in, uh, what was it, Christmas 2015 and again in 2016. They took on the state treasury of Ukraine in, in 2016, like a year later. The biggest hacker hack attack to the supply chain in history started as an assault on Ukraine by Russia, right? Petya, not Petya viruses, which caused $10 billion of damage. Ukraine was ground zero for that. All of that, and you decide, you know what? (laughs) I'm going to start a cyber company in the middle of Ukraine. Yep. The, the the story is a little different here. Uh, I was living in Israel when I decided to start a company. And the reason why I decided to start a company because I couldn't find a job. <laughs> That's honest. <laughs> uh, I couldn't find a job uh, in Israel. Israel is very expensive. So I started doing something on the side. And this on the side became a company later. So when it started to become something real as a company, uh, I started building a team in Ukraine. And then that's when I came back to Ukraine after two years of living in Israel. Wonderful. Well, tell me, what's it like, though, today, leading that team? You have uh, the majority of your people are are still in Ukraine, I, I understand. 55 of your employees of your people are in Ukraine. The developers you work with, uh, who you source, many of them still live in Ukraine. Help me understand that. What is that like? So there was three, I, I, I could, there, there two, three different time periods. So there was time period before the war. When there was just tension, nothing real. Uh, there was first four weeks of the war, and there's now. Yeah, three totally different periods. At the beginning, people were very tense and nervous, and we had to spend some time with them and and help them to to feel that they will be taken care of. You know, no matter what, we could do some great things, and some things were very naive for us to think. For example. We thought if something happens, we're gonna organize some work on the, uh, you know, working space on 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 the western city, uh, in the western city of Lviv, and uh, we're gonna, you know, evacuate everyone. We're gonna transfer anyone. We're gonna, you know, find them accommodations. But in the reality, we've never been at war, so we didn't know. Like, right? We couldn't even imagine like what's gonna happen. You're trying to prepare for the unimaginable. Right. Yeah. But we were so naive thinking that we could do that. In the reality, when the war started, um, there was no transportation. You couldn't take train. You couldn't take a bus. The, war, the roads were blocked. People couldn't get out. Uh, also, a lot of people made their own decisions. They, you know, a lot of people didn't want to leave. And uh, it, it was, of course, their decision. But we, we couldn't even think that people wouldn't want to leave. We thought, okay, if the war started, people would want to relocate and find a safer place. But a lot of people felt much safer, even in the in the middle of the actionable war, they, they felt much safer at home than going somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, you could understand that because you don't know, at least you know what's happening here. You don't know what's going to happen, you know, if you go there. Sure. You know, last I heard, there were like 5 million displaced refugees. You show up in Poland with a, you know, grocery bag full of your things. Right. Who knows? Yeah. That's, that's true. And also the Western cities were packed. We couldn't find accommodations. In the end, we could place some people, some people could place themselves, but it was impossible to find an apartment, an office. It was impossible. And people that made their own decisions and uh, we, we couldn't think of that. But what we did great is we assured everyone that they're going to keep their jobs no matter what, if they go to, you know, we have two people who are mobilized uh, and they, I think, will be at war at the, you know, 
until the end of the war. And we, we keep their jobs, we keep paying them salary. And it made people come 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 down a little because let's face it, we, we try to say that work is not the center of life, but it is. It's not just if you think about like income, security, you know, sure. The, and, and you spend most of your time there, conscious time, right? Yeah. We're sure that everyone has will, will keep their jobs and salaries. And also we gave two months salary advance so people can have cash. That was obvious that, you know, whatever happens, there will be not enough cash and it will be hard to get cash. And uh, so Alexander, help me get my head around this. In the middle of a war, you're telling your employees, don't worry, we're not going to have any layoffs. We'll help you move if you want to. Here's pay in advance. And don't worry, there'll be a job for you. Yeah, because I, I would want I would want someone to do this for me. Wow. I, I got to tell you, it's... It's becoming less of a wonder for me how uh, your president uh, became who he is. You know, it's. You, I wonder if that's representative of the culture. You know, Ukraine comes out of the shadow of the former Soviet Union to establish itself as, let's face it, sort of an economic powerhouse. Uh, the country voluntarily gives up its nuclear arsenal. You sign a bunch of trade agreements. Right. You elect a president who has become, I think, one of the most extraordinary leaders in history. Yeah. And, you know, and in the midst of this, most people around the world know that agriculture has always been a big part of the Ukrainian economy. But few people know that over the last few years, some of the best software developers, hackers, data scientists have come from Kiev, have come from Ukraine. Uh, And you guys have really stepped into the breach. Uh, I know for years, you know, I mean, on the white hat and the black hat side, right? There was nothing scarier than a Ukrainian hacker. Uh, these guys had some skills. And if you could hire them as a developer, as a data scientist to work in AI, you know, th- this was where we went. And so here you, you're part of that, right? And when when, uh, when did that start, by the way? I forgot to ask you, when did Lemon.io stand up? When did you decide you were tired of being unemployed and decide to start this company? I want I want to come back and comment on something. You said that you know people uh, people say a lot that it's extraordinary how you know and and this is like that we decided to keep the jobs, but yeah. I don't think we did any anything extraordinary. I think when you have such a threat to to you and the closed ones, you unite. This is this is what I think this that will happen anywhere because this is such a threat on a group of people. They unite. They have to unite. They have to take care of each other. And it's not something extraordinary we did. It's something I wanted to to do for myself. Yeah. If I would be mobilized, I want the company to pay me salary, keep paying me salary, and give me cash advance that I can, can you know, I can rely on something. And uh, it's it's not. I, I don't. I don't think it's it's something to to prize about. But uh, it's something I think would happen to anyone. We're going to agree to disagree on this one because <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, both of uh, our countries. I'm in the U.S. right now, and the U.S. and Ukraine in the middle of all this are surviving the deadliest global pandemic that we've seen in the century. Right. Uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainian people came together to help abate some of the effects of this. The uh, deaths per million in Ukraine are substantially lower than they are in the U.S. With a population of 44 million, th- this ethos was in the culture. And so what I would, the reason I'll, I'll agree to disagree with you is to me, this is uh, representative of a culture that prizes those things that says, you know what, uh, these become important, you know, and I know this is, is a prosaic uh, bit mundane example of that. Well, for years, I taught uh, a course in the MBA programs uh, at a couple of different universities. It was an MBA MS capstone course that I titled Leadership in Times of Crisis, Chaos, and Change. And I used to talk about the fact that leading in a crisis is different, right? It's it's not ordinary leadership. And it sounds to me like, and at the risk of embarrassing you, right, it's not just you. This is a nation that has a mindset that says, we have to lead through this crisis. It requires a different set of skills, a different perspective, uh, but we have to own that. Right. And and to your point, I, I think there is this aspect of that where you say you're also serving yourself, right? By serving your employees, 
Uh, this is what you would expect also. And this is also going to be in the longer term interest of your organization, of your company. Is that fair? Of course. Of course. And it was not a point. It was not a goal, but it influences us very much. Like, for example, we, we give security to people and also we uh, we give up all the profits to you know to the victory to the protection to through different funds to to find uh, ammunition to the soldiers and everything and every person who works in the company they feel that whatever they do and how much they do it it's gonna influence how how closer Ukraine got will get to to the victory how much they will get more ammunition and um, they feel it they they understand their their um, contribution and they contribute more yeah. Well, we're, we're going to underscore that, and we're going to return to that, the fact that you're contributing all profits to the war effort and to help uh, your country, I, I find to be, again, staggering. You know, the, the theme of this uh, show that we host here is most programs, most journalists, most uh, uh, hosts of, of conversations want to talk about what happened and what's happening. We want to look forward a little bit. We want to talk about what we can do tomorrow, today. So in that spirit, I'm going to ask you, what's the future of Ukraine? Do you foresee an independent, rebuilt Ukraine anytime soon? Of course. You can see this looking a little bit back. Before 2014, before the, the revolution that started, the, 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 when the president ran away, Yanukovych, and when the war started, you always felt that we were raised in a culture of communism where mm-hmm. it seems like there is a collective responsibility, but in reality, you know, everyone is just protecting themselves and everyone is working for themselves. So to be able to rise, you have to go and start, you know, like killing the people and try to go up and up and up and up. This is a taste of communism that came after the communism broke and, you know, and the Soviet Union broke down. And to do something, you had to, to to know people. If you don't know people, you have to pay someone under the table. Right. And you were brought in this culture that you have to grind to do anything. And uh, I remember spending uh, some time in, in the U.S. in um, in 2005, I think. And I had to, had to do something in a city hall. And I came in, and I was just a normal person who could do anything without knowing anyone. <laughs> and I was like, this broke my mind. I'm thinking like, wow, <laughs> you know, this. Yeah, I don't have to pay off the people and my uncle doesn't have to work here for me to have an opportunity. Yeah, Right. So after 2014, a lot of people woke up saying that we have to unite and there is collective responsibility. And we have, during the revolution, it was it was amazing how people, like, you know, gathering to confront the dictator president. And it, it was amazing. And after that, people became more self-conscious, more responsible, you know, like, Everyone I knew were talking about like paying taxes in time and you know like not skipping because before that you could you could avoid taxes and it was okay. Now every person I knew felt responsible to pay their taxes yeah. because this goes to the state, it goes to rebuild the country. Because after the after the you know country ran away, there was no uh, there was no budget, <laughs> there was no treasury sure. for a long time, uh, and it became more and more and more and more and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you picked a war, and I think after the war it will pick even, even even more because people will think, okay, we won now, but we have to we have to not let again the communism to influence us, the the past to influence us. We have to rebuild the country. I think that's going to happen. Yeah, wow. And, and to become an entrepreneur in that environment, in a a post communist society where Lemon IO couldn't have existed uh, even twenty years ago, right? Maybe, yeah. Ten years ago, yeah. Yeah, there was a different environment. It was different people. Um, but uh, it could have it would have happened, you know. It, I, I try not to, I always have a hard time, like, you know, trying to, like, what, what would have happened? But it could, it could have happened, you know. Like a lot of, a lot of amazing companies um, um, that uh, maybe not 20 years ago, but started like 10 years ago and still exist. And uh, Wonderful, fantastic. You know, I, I talk to friends here in the U.S. and I tell them, Everyone talks about 9-11, you know, our uh, tragic day of, of being targeted by terrorists. And I tell them, remember 9-11, but remember 9-12, right? Remember when we as a nation, as a people came together. And too many people tend to forget that. And, and I think 
that isn't the case in Ukraine, from what you're telling me. People came together and they remembered, you know, what had happened. And how do we not let that happen again? How do we take this sense of civic responsibility that uh, in many countries, not just the U.S., but around the world, this notion of serving your nation, of helping your country, uh, of helping your culture, I think is has waned somewhat. So it's, it's very heartening to see that all, you know, becoming the impetus for some good uh, in Ukraine. So what about Lemon.io? What, what is the company's future, do you think? Um, it's a good question. We, and we spoke and debate a lot with the co-founders about this. Um, this type of companies are built to sell, yeah. built to exit. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we have to be like very honest. There are some companies that are built for 100 years, 200 years. There are some companies that are not. And uh, we were thinking that at some point we're going to grow to the point that we can sell to someone and, and exit. Uh, but now we just don't know. Yeah. Now, until the war ends, I don't feel comfortable even thinking about this, but because right now we are a source of income for the people. We, and not just employees, uh, still 90%, 85 to 90% of, of engineers that uh, get income from our platform are in Ukraine. And uh, it's a source for... Um, it's a source for Texas. It's a source for um, uh, supplying the, the military and so on and so forth. So yeah. right now the salts are gone away. We'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and add to all that, you know, I, I used to sit on the board of a private equity venture capital fund, and when you're talking about a company like Lemon IO, we used to refer to these as aqua hires. Really, you know, the assets are the individuals, are the people there. And given how precarious the circumstance is, I can understand, you know, your reticence to to want to put this on the block at this point. I hear you about building the exit. You know, that's always been my mantra, uh, certainly what the organizations that I participate in and lead now uh, is, you, look, you build uh, with an your eye on the exit. I think the days of hoping for an IPO and hoping to be a cash cow and go on for build a legacy company for 50 years and not, not quite so common anymore. Uh, and now you're in this really tough spot where you'd be asking someone to take on not just a company, but what you consider to be uh, your civic obligations, civil obligations, right? Right to support. Yeah. You know, a uh, bit off topic, but I'm reminded my producers told me that I should be sure to ask you about, in addition to the the violence, the kinetic war being launched by Russia, ask you about uh, some of the propaganda efforts. And and they wanted me to ask you about Israel's targeted ad campaign to Israeli citizens in Ukraine and the evidence of Russian disinformation ads as well. And, and some of these things that are being launched in cyberspace, um, I, I think you're in a tech industry, you you are on the ground or you're certainly intimately involved in this arena. What can you tell us about any of that? So this is two different things that we talk about. Yeah. Uh, one is when, as I'm an Israeli citizen, when before the war started, but it was a lot of hype in the media, a lot of um, people, like media was showing different uh, evidence that that's going to happen. You know, in this day, this day, I started receiving emails from uh, Ministry of Defense that we have to, or foreign affairs, we have to leave the country uh, as soon as possible. Even, and I, I, we didn't, I mean, I, I received these messages, I just never, Yeah. I don't know, maybe I never considered them serious. And then I, they even targeted uh, Facebook messages at me that you have to leave the country. I didn't feel comfortable leaving right away. And this is what led me to. When did you leave, by the way? We left, um, we left Kiev the next day after the war started. And Okay, so in February. Yeah, and then we left Ukraine maybe five days after the war started. Yeah, wow. But about propaganda, it was, it was something different that we talked about uh, with your team, is that even up, up until now, with having a war for eight years, there was a huge influence from Russia on Ukraine. And this is type of propaganda that are like the, the Russian culture, the, the, the I mean, the pop culture, the, the uh, television, you know, we had a, pro, a lot of pro-Russian uh, politics in the country, and it, it was really hard to bring up the the harder to bring up the Ukrainian nationalism when you have such a huge you know influence. Sure. 
even up, up until recently, there was Russian channels on TV uh, that had Russian mindset and, you know, were propagating and putting in people's head, whatever they put. So this is what we talked about. If you, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know anything about like um, current propaganda and uh, yeah. Well, you know, to that point, and, and I know it's not really fair to ask you to speak on behalf of a nation, but what is the general sentiment toward, I mean, toward Putin, I know, uh, I can guess, but what about toward Russia and the Russian people? Is Are they, you know, do we think of them now the same way you thought of Nazi Germany or uh, of, I don't know, any of these aggressor nations? Do you think this has become endemic to the population? Is this the average pe- person in Russia? Do you think they buy into this bullshit? Do you think that they're uh, believing that you know, there's a Nazification or they need a denazification of Ukraine. And do you think they buy into any of that? Um, I, I can I speak, uh, you know, um, yeah. from from the from nation, but I, I can speak for myself. And first of all, it's it's true that they buy in the the propaganda because in Russia and Soviet Union, propaganda was very strong. And uh, it's not just TV, but it's from all over. And I know for a fact that people that I know uh, are thinking that there is like there's a threat from Ukraine Nazis to Russian people. And um, I have uh, friends whose family in Russia were calling them and saying, you know, come to Russia, we're going to protect you, go from those Nazis and like leave the country. And uh, they, they didn't want to hear anything. This is like real story that I know from first and second hand. It must be startling to you having dual citizenship in Israel. Uh, and Zelensky uh, has a Jewish heritage. And to be hearing, you know, that there's a bunch of Nazis running the country. I mean, you almost had a laugh. When I first started, I thought, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. And, and and it's true. And like they had, they said, they say that there's a threat for Russian speaking people. And I'm, I used to be a Russian speaking person up until a few months ago. I spoke Russian all my life in all over Ukraine, wearing kippah. I'm an I'm Orthodox Jew. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I never had a problem. Once, maybe someone said something, but you know, yeah, look, there's morons everywhere. Of course, you're gonna get, yeah, yeah, you couldn't go to New York City and not hear some schmuck, yeah. And like, I was, I felt safe, never had any problems, but the program is very strong. And it's not only in, and I, I'll tell you about the propaganda that I said that in Ukraine, you could feel the propaganda from Russia because there are channels, there are politics, but you can feel it even in Israel. Russian speaking people in Israel, a lot of them are. And they're out of, outside of Russia. They are convinced that there's a problem in Ukraine and they have to fix it. Wow! And and, and it's amazing. I mean, like yeah, if to look at the from the business you know point, it's it's an amazing thing. How could they influence people that much? But from the real life, it's just laughable that people still think this. You know. Yeah, you know, I, I have we have a guest coming on the show. Uh, I think this week, next week. A uh, friend of mine who used to work for the United States Department of Homeland Security, and this was his expertise, was in misinformation and disinformation. And I've spent the last, I don't even want to admit how many years working with computer systems and working in and with uh, social media and some of those, uh, and, and advertising and all these sorts of arenas. And it really makes you realize what a mixed blessing social media has become and the internet in general, you know, it's that these lies can be perpetrated, propagated, uh, perpetuated in seconds, milliseconds and at volumes that we can't even imagine. And so, you know, you're getting calls from people who are concerned for your well-being, and you tell them, what are you talking about? But they're being so inundated with information from all these different sources that they figure, oh, someone's holding a gun to your head. But also, they didn't do it only with uh, with Ukraine. They did it before with Georgia, with Moldova, and it's like going over and over and over again. Frankly, they did it in the U.S. Right. Yeah, it was the 2016 election here in the U.S. Right. They're propagating the outside enemy is, is Russia thing, and they like fall for it every time. But you have to understand that like uh, the majority of Russia is... You know, there's Moscow, there is a very developed city, and there's St. Petersburg. But the majority of Russia is uh, our villages. Right. People live simpler lives, and they spend a lot of time on TV uh, and uh, or in social media. And this is 
if you're going to be taught to all the time, same thing, same thing, same thing, you're going to start repeating those things. That's exactly. It, it's classic brainwashing, right? Yeah. And when you're brainwashed, it's, it's so easy to let down the humanity. Yeah. To let down your like uh, social conduct. Yep. Right. You, you, you became angry. You became, um, you feel, you feel um, abused and that's it. And you start, you know, screaming, like, let's kill Ukrainians and, and, you know, applaud to that. Well, and that to me is always the the sort of precipitating factor is when you look at the propaganda from these various uh, atrocities that have occurred over time. You know, I, I think uh, even the U.S. has been guilty of it when we portrayed Japanese Americans as being, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah. When we talked about African American, Black Americans as being, you know, le- other than human. Uh, in Rwanda, with the Hutu and the Tutsi, referring uh, to them as cockroaches, uh, the the Nazi Germany referring to Jews as rats. Uh, it's as soon as you start dehumanizing and you start to treat them as other than us, than real qualified human beings, inevitably, this is what it leads to. Yeah, it, it, it will go down. Yeah, and it's just at pace now. So let me ask you, Alexander, um, I think most of us are tired of yelling at the television set. Most people, uh, and not just in the U.S., I think around the world, want to do something. They want action to be taken. And certainly, we're frustrated that that our political leaders don't act and don't do more. But we want to do something. What do you think? What can the people who are listening to this podcast, what can they do to help? To be honest, um I think a lot, most of the people, they don't scream on TV and they actually do. There are a lot of campaigns that, you know, like gathering for Ukraine, uh, the humanitarian things and uh, ammunition. And I heard, I saw a lot, a lot of campaigns that are helping Ukrainians and, and refugees and people in Ukraine and the military. Uh, you, you heard this thing that where like, I think like thousands of people went to Airbnb and started booking those places that don't, might not even exist anymore. And just, just to send people money. Have you heard about that? Yeah, yeah. So a lot, a lot of things like that happen, and it's amazing. I, I had a friend who I helped to evacuate from a occupied city, and then, uh, then I, uh, I, you know, he, he, he's a beginner, three animator. I'm trying to find it, work for him right now, but he had to leave in, in in minutes, and he couldn't take almost anything, and he needed a computer. So I posted on Twitter. In like few hours, we could, you could, you know, fundraise for him for for laptop. He, now he can work on and. Uh, so people are taking action, and it's amazing. Yeah. But people who don't know how to act, there are three things you, they can do. First of all, they can hire and buy from Ukrainians. A lot of people are misplaced from work, and they 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 need income. Not all of them know English, but a lot a lot of people know English. They can be uh, marketers, developers. Um, you know, the whole industry went down. You 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 cannot find work. Yeah. Uh, or buy from Ukrainians because when you, uh, when you buy from Ukrainian companies and a lot of them, there's there was even a website I'm gonna send you so you can put in the uh, show notes that just lists uh, a uh, Ukrainian companies that you can buy from Grammarly and uh, Petcube and Preply and like all those companies. First of all, they pay taxes to Ukraine. They pay Ukrainian salaries, and when you pay Ukrainian salaries, it's not just paying salaries to this person, but also they will help their relatives and parents and pay taxes to support the economy. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, two things. First, I didn't know Grammarly was a Ukrainian company. That's great to know. You know, I I just want to let our listeners know we're going to post a bunch of links. Uh, We're going to get some from you, Alexander. We've, our producers have dug up a few that we'd like to post also. And I also, because uh, I already know you well enough to know my friend that you're not going to say this, but I will. Anyone out there who's listening who has developer needs, you need someone working in the software industry. You need anything from a a project manager to an AI architect, uh, anything in the middle. You need a full stack developer. You need anyone. Uh, We have made a decision as a company. We go to Lemon.io first, period, the end, full stop. And that's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's because the people that Jibril, who is the coder we ha- that you have working with us now, is absolutely extraordinary. I have hired and led literally thousands of developers, software engineers, coders, data scientists over the course of my career. Uh, this is a different league 
the people whose resumes you put in front of us were were mind-blowing. You know, uh, we also, as a company, we decide we're not going to take advantage of that economically. We pay uh, American wages. We don't care where someone is. And so, you know, I'm we're going to commit to doing that. I'm hoping that people listening will do the same. The other thing I want to offer you, Alexander, um, where did you say you are right now? You're in New York? I yeah, I we were located to New York. Well, I'm currently at my New Jersey home. Brother, if you need a place to live, I'm serious. We have a really big house. Thank you so much. Uh bring the family. You can come move in. Uh you can stay with us. Or if there's one of your developers, somebody who's hiding out. Uh and the thing is, uh, everyone out there, that's you know one of the few advantages to living in this post-COVID economy. We have virtualized the workforce. We have virtualized the world. It doesn't matter where people are anymore. I used to laugh about the fact that I didn't know what the people working on the same floor as me were doing on any given day back when I was a, a chief data officer, a chief data scientist, right. what is the darn difference if they're working from somewhere else, anywhere in the world, as long as they have an internet connection? And discipline, to be honest. And discipline. Well, and that's it. You know, that's what you're really looking for is the work ethic, the ability to be able to commit and to do. And where do you see better than that? So, so the second thing, if you don't mind, there's the, there's three things I wanted to say, that, how you can help. Please. Second thing, that, and thank you for offering your home. To be honest, we just found, find, found a, a, a rental place here in Spring Valley. Okay. Uh, and uh, second thing is actually helping refugees because there are a lot of people who left Ukraine. Some, most of them went to Poland and, and, and Poland has been amazing for help. Amazing. And Germany and like all these countries are helping a lot. But to be honest, even with all the help, there is more need than more demand for help than than there is yeah. and uh, a lot of people it's in it's not about the money most of demand is not about the money even like you come to a new country you don't know the language you don't know how to get around how to find i don't know how to go to a hospital a lot of things just helping those people like letting them call you and ask you a question is is even more help than giving the money yeah no, i hear you and just being there for people and, you know, the other part of that in the uh, context of it's not just about money, I'm going to encourage everyone who's listening. This is the single most nonpartisan issue, I think, in our nation's history. There's no one other than possibly Rand Paul who is against the idea of helping Ukrainian people. Call your congressman. Call your senator. Uh, send a message to the White House. I'll tell you, I worked in and with government for a long time. That matters. If we can get enough voices who are telling, tell your local state legislator, it doesn't matter. Call your congressman, uh, leave a voicemail, send in a note through their website. If there's enough of a groundswell, something can be done and we can step up our efforts to be able to help this nation that's under siege. Yeah, 100%. And the third thing that is very important, you hear all those messages in news that this country is giving weapons, this country is giving money, and it's amazing. But all those all those weapons are going to come in time. It will take time to, to, to bring them, to process all the bureaucracy. It takes time. Yeah. And there are a lot of funds in Ukraine that help tactical need, that give tactical needs to, we, we work with them a lot. Um, we, had, we had groups that had to go to the east where it's a front right now, without even the um, the the w w bulletproof vest. Bulletproof vest, yes. Yeah. So literally, if you work with those funds, they will help right away. Wow. They can help like in days, not in month, not in and like or find drones that helped uh, the reconnaissance. Sure. Yeah. Those things that go down all the time, so you have to buy, 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 buy to be able to protect yourself. Yeah. So working with those funds to help them, um, and they do amazing jobs. There is few, like there is a um, living in Ukraine, uh, I think. I'm going to give the notes. My producers uh, already, they're sending me texts as we're talking, sending me little notes. Uh, they are absolutely committed. They're going to get with you. They're going to get a bunch of links that we can put on the site that we can use to inform uh, our listeners, that we can use to hopefully drum up some more support. But before we start to wrap up, um, Alexander, give me some hope. Uh, tell me how we make a better tomorrow starting today. What do we, how's it going to look? Uh, are things going to be okay? Uh, is it going to be better? Do you think? Um, 
It's a very good question. Uh, my philosophy is everything will be okay. <laughs> I am a religious person and uh, I, I think it's going to be okay. Uh, um, and in reality, okay is something that you have to actually look for. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard, like when, when you are in such an uncertainty, it's hard to find an okay. It's hard, hard to find good, but uh, it's going to be okay. And uh, Ukraine is very strong right now and it's stronger than ever. And the whole world is happening. The whole world is uniting to bring the peace to the world because you don't know how it's going to expand. So in that spirit, what does Ukraine look like five years from now? Oh, it's it's an amazing, beautiful country, and not because we have um, we have an advanced weapons or best economy in the world or a lot of money. No, it just became because the nation that went through such uh, such hard times together and could could survive. It's going to be an, an an amazing nation. It's going to be. I think it's going to be the 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 rise of Ukraine that you know m- most of countries have never saw. You know, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's not because of the economy. It's not because of weapons. It's because of the indomitable spirit of the people of Ukraine. I am going to look forward to having a meal with you in Kiev where we can have anything you want except chicken Kiev because I now know that's... <laughs> that's my dream. <laughs> Alexander, is it okay if we check back with you in uh, a little while to see how things are progressing? Sure, of course I will. We'd love to have you on again. Well, thank you so much, so much for taking the time with us. I, I it's my pleasure. can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Let's you and I stay in touch offline of these conversations. Uh, you can reach out to me anytime. That's really it, uh, except, uh, of course, to say, Slava Ukraini. Uh, <laughs> glory to Ukraine. <laughs> glory to soldiers. There you go. It was a pleasure. Uh, I, I had an amazing chat. Um, I hope we can speak more and uh, spend more time together. Rest assured, my friend, we absolutely will. And to all of you, thank you for taking the time for tuning in. It means uh, a lot, and it really helps. Just being aware of these things and participating in the conversation, even vicariously, even remotely, uh, we're glad you're here. And we want to thank you for your commitment to making a better tomorrow today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm